a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. All right, we are rounding out the week here. And what a week it's been. Some of the things that were revealed include uh, some pretty conclusive evidence on uh, just how deep FBI corruption was going back to uh, actually even back to to the time when uh, Trump was first elected in 2016. I'm not going to relive all of that for you, but uh, I've got a great article from Ryan McMakin. We're going to be sharing that a little bit later on in the program uh, about uh, what needs to be done. He's pretty blunt. He just says, end the FBI. I don't disagree with him. Also, uh, my friend, Dr. John C. Pulver from Climbing Upward is going to join me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We're going to talk about how to become people of action rather than just complainers. I know you may say that's strong talk for a guy who sits behind the microphone and complains all the time every day. Yes, it is. I guess I need all the help I can get. John also has a really great take on what faith is and how to uh, exercise it. Pretty cool stuff. And uh, let's uh, let's start out with uh, something that I think may be as timely as ever. Look, anybody who is even halfway paying attention can look around us and go, whoa, there's a lot of instability, and it seems to be building. And they're right, it is. Economically, politically, you know, just uh, the world is, it's in a pretty shaky place right now. And, you know, that's not to, to make you want to run around with your arms over your head screaming, you know, that the sky is falling down. It's just an acknowledgement that we're, we're in a very volatile time. And it's probably going to get more challenging before it gets easier. So having said that, some of the things that we can do to address the problem fall well outside the realm of politics. And this is one of my themes and has been for many years. There's a whole bunch of life that is outside of politics and the people who are trying to make politics every part of every interaction and everything we do in life are probably not the people that we really need to be dealing with in terms of uh, they're, they're not the ones we need to look to for solutions because it always comes down to, well, you need to give me more power, more authority, more money, you know, from your taxes. That's a non-starter. So I'd like to take you in a slightly different direction. And I think Jeff Minnick writing for intellectualtakeout.org is, is on the right path here. If you are looking for shelter from the gathering storm, start by looking to your family. Jeff says, families are islands of sanity in an ocean of crazy. You know, there's a time that would have sounded like, well, that's a little pejorative, but okay. But no, he, I think he's right. He says, in her forthcoming, witty, often snarky book, Domestic Extremist, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War, Peachy Keenan writes of her group of acquaintances. She says, because I have fewer than eight children, I'm something of a lightweight. And then she recounts the following incident. A friend my age recently welcomed her 12th baby. That's a one followed by 11 more. She says, I mistakenly asked her if the new baby was number 13. 13? Come on, that's crazy, she laughed. Though pseudonymous Peachy Keenan makes her home in Southern California, while Jeff Minnick resides in the country in Virginia, he says, we apparently both live in communities where large families are the norm. He says, here in my town, particularly at my church, you'll find an abundance of households teeming with seven, eight, and ten children. 
Now, because I'm accustomed to hanging around parents half my age whose squad of children from toddlers to teens are darting about the house and yard, nothing in this situation strikes me as unusual. But he says some of my friends and relatives fall into a shocked silence when I describe these get-togethers. For them, a large family is three children, a cat, and a dog. He says the large families in my community tend to be traditional in that the fathers bring home the money and the mothers manage the household. The fathers I know, for instance, he says, work in construction, law, real estate, medicine, software sales, and education. Three of the moms work part-time at home, but all have charge of their children's education. All but two have chosen private academies or homeschooling and manage the household, including the finances, or at least often including the finances. Plus, they drive the gang to various extracurricular activities. He says you can easily identify them by the 12 passenger vans you see rolling around town. By their very existence, he says, these families bust one major myth. Using U.S. Department of Agriculture statistics, one estimate puts the cost of raising a child from birth to age 18, adjusted for inflation, at $288,094. This figure breaks down to an average annual cost of $16,005. Multiply that by four or five or six children, and the figure becomes astronomical, but he says it's also dead wrong. Why? Because that estimate includes perks like restaurants, daycare, and other amenities that large families, or for that matter, small families on a tight budget, consider extraneous. Plus, he says the U.S. Department of Agriculture even notes that the cost per child decreases with each additional child. Huh, economies of scale, who knew? So Jeff Minnick says, my wife and I had four children, all of whom are now raising four or more of their own. He says, some of my relatives have made comments to me about overpopulation, apparently unaware that most populations around the world are in decline. The birth rate in our country, for example, continues to fall. Replacement level for a population is around 2.1 births per female, yet here in America, that number is about 1.7. He says, the irony here is that soon the children of these families will be in the workforce. And with the taxes on their income, they'll be providing their critics with Social Security and Medicare benefits. But that's nowhere near the greatest gift given to the rest of us by these parents who lovingly raise these children. He says these moms and dads are the true counterculturists of our time. They may not see themselves as such, but they're swimming against the current of a river reeking with filth and garbage. Most of them raise their children in a religious faith, teach them civics and the story of America. Instruct them in virtues by word and example and encourage critical thinking skills. The family, as it has been throughout human history, is for them the core of society and culture. And he says as these young people leave home off to higher education or the workplace, they'll be taking these values with them. Someday when they're raising families of their own, the great majority of them will pass those same values to their offspring, again, a timeless practice. As Kenan notes in her book, this is a lifestyle that will, that will uh, reorient you away from the broken culture and towards a family, your home, and your best chance at true, lasting happiness. 100 years ago in Fancies versus Fads, G.K. Chesterton added another garland when he wrote, The family is the test of freedom, because the family is the only thing that the free man makes for himself and by himself. Jeff Minnick says it's the family large or small, that stands against the raw power of the state and the intrusions of our ugly, amoral culture. 
In this age of chaos, mendacity, and corruption, the family stands as the last bastion of law, order, morality, and virtue, and we should do all in our power to encourage its survival. I think about this, uh, by the way, I agree with what he's saying here, and I think about this in contrast to one of the great imperatives that drives so much of the uh, the protesting, the activism, and even, yeah, I'm going to say it, the violence out there on the streets from uh, the political left. And that is over the right to abortion. Which strikes me as, as about as anti-family as you can get. For some reason, we have reached a point where the, uh, the ability, or at least the perceived right, to, uh, to kill children right up until the moment of birth is uh, perceived as the most essential and, and sacred thing that a society can have. And it's just crazy to see people flipping out. Here in Idaho, when uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned last year, Idaho, like other states that, uh, that have a very pro-life uh, population and legislature, said, okay, if the ball is back in our court, then we will, we will restrict abortion on demand, at least saying you know, the only time you're going to see it done is when there is like an extreme case that, uh, that involves the life of the mother. Literally, she's going to die if this abortion isn't performed. All the elective ones, which is the majority of abortions, the ones done just for convenience. Whoops! Oh, better take care of that before it becomes an 18-year responsibility. Yeah, that's that's what accounts for the majority of abortions. And, you know, by, by restricting it, you know, at least within the state of Idaho, this doesn't you know, tell people you can't go elsewhere. It, I think the law did clarify you can't take an underage minor, you know, to get an abortion across state lines without their, their parents' consent. But people are freaking out. Oh, the, the, the cries, the gnashing of ah, the, the Doctors are leaving the state. Hospitals are going to close down. Everybody wants to flee. And I don't want to sound too callous, but I'm like, good. Really, if that's, what, if that's what these folks have built their lives around, if their strongest value is we have to be able to kill these children in the womb. And I know we have a lot of medical euphemisms, products of conception and so forth that are supposed to soften the blow of what's really taking place. But I come back to the bottom line of, look, if it wasn't a living thing, you wouldn't have to kill it to stop it from growing. That whole mindset seems very anti-family. And I guess to bring it back full circle here, what is the solution to the troubles around us? It's found in family. Because when everything else fails, the family, I believe, is the first and best form of government. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Happy to welcome my friend, Dr. John C. Pulver, back to the program. Actually, I got his book in the mail last week, Growing Beyond Your Family of Origin Experience. And, uh, John, I haven't had a chance to sit down and read a whole lot. My time, unfortunately, has, has been kind of spread thin. But um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And, and I want to just put this out there at the very beginning one of the reasons that I love to talk with you is because ultimately my goal here is not to inform the world in a crisp, upbeat fashion or to make people afraid or to tell them, you know, what should be making them angry. I want to empower people 
to grasp what's going on around us, but also to understand there are many things that we can and should be doing. And uh, let's start today by talking about taking action at the individual level. And I know that uh, you have a very good take on what it is that prompts us to actually get up off the couch and start taking action in terms of uh, sometimes there are internal influences, sometimes there are external influences. Where would you like to begin? I would like to begin by pointing out that the entire objective of my website, climbingupward.com, is all about personal empowerment. And you cannot be personally empowered if you feel like you have no control over anything that is happening around you. If you feel that way, it's very easy to get into a victim mentality. What you want to do is find out how much personal power you can muster up within yourself. And so psychologists have actually proposed a kind of a dichotomous little thing that they call internal locus of control versus external locus of control. Now that's a lot of jargon, but it's it summarizes what you said earlier, is what your, is your focus for change or control from the inside of yourself or is it from the external things that happen to you? Um, that's that's a very a very important thing to figure out how you operate in your MO. Are you someone that is driven more by what happens to you from the outside? Or are you someone who takes from the inside a set of values, a set of goals, a set of, of outcomes that you want to have, and then you operate according to that. An example might be for this, by the way, is someone who is sitting on a house that they have paid for. They look at the economy and they say, well, I don't know if I should sell the house right now or not because I may need to wait and see if things are gonna get better. And so they wait for that external circumstance to have them take action. They have to have enough suffering from the outside in order to say, let's make a change. Whereas the internal locus of control person would take a look at the circumstance, but they'd also take a look at making a decision that is not dependent upon something happening from the outside, but is congruent with what it is that they want to have accomplished in their lives, the quality that they want to have, and, and then they might make a decision that now is the time to sell this house independent of anything that may be going on. Well, it's kind of a, maybe a somewhat what lame example, I don't know, but it is something that many people have had to face. Do, do, you, do you wait until it's absolutely obvious to you from the external that you've got to do something or can you muster up enough internal motivation to get something done? Okay, can I... Let me follow that up with a question because this this is something that I feel like I've seen a lot. There are people, and I've been one of these people many times, I wait until I see that the crowd is generally moving in that direction. It must be safe, so therefore there's my external, you know, signal that, well, it looks like everybody's going this direction, you know, buying cryptocurrency, whatever it may be. Um, but now I feel like if enough people are doing it, I can probably trust that this is something safe as opposed to, you know, ideally 
I want to be the kind of person who, no, I'll sit down and figure this out for myself. And even if nobody else is doing it, as long as I'm satisfied that I've done my due diligence, I want to have the kind of confidence that I can make those kind of decisions, take action, and trust myself to do so. Well, what you refer to here is the effect of looking around at the herd and the crowd and seeing what they're doing and then taking your, you know, your, your, oh, I'm, this is not going to go good. Like, like my <laughs> cue, your, my cue to my act cue. Oh, Okay, yeah, well, my cue there they go. From the others. I, I came across an interesting quote when I was thinking about this from an American author by the name of Ursula K. Le Guin. And she, she talks about change and about things that are going to be happening in our lives. And he, she says, change is freedom and change is life. It is always easier to not think for oneself. Find a nice, safe hierarchy and settle in. Don't make changes. Don't risk disapproval. Don't upset your syndics. <laughs> it's always easier to let yourself be governed. There's a point around age 20, she says, when you have to choose to be like everyone else the rest of your life or to make a virtue of your peculiarities, unquote. I think that's that's pretty exciting. That's brilliant. Um, the point is you have an opportunity at any point to take this risk. And this risk takes guts. It takes courage. It takes faith to make a risk, to make a change. And what's wonderful about it is that you, in this process of making a change that comes from inside of you, you become acquainted with your own personal power. And this is a thing that everybody needs to be able to do, is to have some understanding of their own skills, their own power to make change, their own ability to make some control on things. and. And, and to make some kind of difference. And especially if this decision that you make to become yourself or to make this decision over on the side adds to the quality of your life and everybody else can see it, then it's just really exciting because you say to yourself, I, in my own volition and my own agency, did this thing that brought this forward for me. And I feel better now that I did this and I know new, th know new things about myself and I need to slow down because I'm sounding like I'm on ADD <laughs> or something here. But I get excited about this because empowerment is so important to know about yourself. Without taking that action that you know comes from you, then you don't think that you are the one that has any control to make things better. It's only what other people are doing to you. Wow. So what gets us locked into that? Is it just the, the discomfort of, of stepping out on our own? I, I'm thinking of a, there was a line from, from the old Simpsons cartoon, uh, an actor who would always remind people, hey, you and me, you and me remember me from such films as get confidence, stupid. <laughs> My kids still laugh about that. Yeah, but, um, but really, it's, it's hard to, to, to trust yourself. It almost feels like, John, it feels like we're taught from a very early age no, 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 no. You don't do that. You defer to somebody in authority, and they'll tell you if you're okay to do that or if you're ready to do that or not. Well, and you, you allude to the idea that we're not really taught to think for ourselves. And Margaret Mead, in another wonderful little quote that I have on this subject, said, children must be taught how to think, not what to think. And so we're so busy being compliant. Now, one of the, one of the problems that we also have when we're growing up is that we all of us – 
are loyal and love our parents, even if they have all these mistakes, because they're the big people and they're raising us and, and we would die without them. So we want to please them. We want to be accepted by others. We want to have people tell us that we're okay. So there's all of these battles that we end up fighting to try to keep in compliance with acceptance. But at the same time, if we don't unfold, then we end up being less than we want to be. And it, and also the society and everybody around us is lessened by the fact that we have not become everything we could be. Now, I know some people would say, what you just said is making me feel guilty. I don't feel guilty, but I feel motivated when I hear that, uh, you know, you could be something more. In fact, if you tap into that, you're not only going to be happier, but you're going to influence other people who want to be more than they are right now and want to know that it can be done. Hold that thought, John. We're going to come back in a few moments. John C. Pulver, Dr. John C. Pulver is my guest. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Dr. John C. Pulver. He is uh, the author of Growing Beyond Your Family of Origin Experience. He's also one of my sponsors. I want to mention that because I need full disclosure here. Uh, Climbing Upward and ClimbingUpwardMusic.com. These are his websites. I actually have a link to Climbing Upward in the show notes. And John, in the last segment, as we were talking about, uh, you know, that, that need to act rather than simply be be moved to action by some outside influence, you had a wonderful quote that would go so well with that. Before before we leave that subject and move on to another one, uh, what was the quote that you had from, uh, was it a university president? Yeah, I gave it was a college principal who was giving a bit of advice to his graduates. And it was from an old newspaper clipping, but I loved it. And this is how it goes. He said to them, you are important and you are needed. It's too late to sit around and wait for somebody to do something someday. Someday is now, and that somebody is you. Wow. A call to action. Well, and and I know this is really hard truth for some people to consider, but when you tell them, look, nobody is coming to the rescue. In other words, the responsibility, if somebody needs to do something, it has to be you. I think back to when I was uh, I was going through a first aid class being taught by the county coroner, of all people, but uh, he was also a paramedic, and, and he said when, when it comes to an emergency, he says, anybody who stands there and says, call 911, just to whomever is close by, can be guaranteed nobody is going to call because there's that bystander effect. Well, somebody else more qualified, somebody smarter who knows what they're doing will go do it. So he said when you find yourself in that situation, you don't just say call 911. He says you take one person by the arm. Look them in the eye and say, you, call 911. That's that's what it takes to get people to go take action because otherwise, you know, we're so humble. We just assume that somebody more qualified is going to step up and do the job. Yes, I often find myself quite frightened, by the way, by following motorcyclists on the freeway because my uh, CPR certificate is expired as well as my knowledge is expired and so I'm afraid to be involved with that. Speaking of fear, that's really what keeps us a lot from in, uh, from acting. It keeps us in a state of inaction. It's risky. It's risky to try something new. And sometimes 
uh, as we have talked before on another on another segment, we get this crabs in the basket syndrome where somebody tries to take an action and the other people are basically saying, who do you think you are? Get back here amongst the crowd. Get back with the thoughts that are supposed to be in your mind. Uh, who do you think you are trying to uh, move away from what the rest of us are doing? But moving away is always, and moving forward is always related to the idea of pushing yourself into the unknown. Now, it takes faith to do that. Now, faith is often thought of as a theological principle where you move forward for things that are unseen with some sort of assurance. But actually, do we really have an assurance when we move forward? It is a complete slate of unknown. It is, you absolutely have no guarantee. So to me, faith is the opposite of objective, observable guarantees. And so if you want to build yourself, you have to move out into the darkness, not knowing what's going to happen. And you have to realize that if you want to build faith and build capacity, you have to move out there. And you won't get any guarantee about what's going to happen. That sounds like a pretty tough concept, though, to sell to people, especially people who've been educated from an early age that, hey, it's all about security and make sure, you know, you know, clean underwear, the whole nine. Everything has got to be very carefully accounted for. Nobody take any risk. We're a very risk averse society. Why is it why is it not reckless to exercise faith? Well, the first thing that I want to say about that question is, is that people often say to themselves, well, I want to have a guarantee or I'm not going to believe in something I can't observe the results of immediately. And yet, except for watching the sunrise every morning and see how gravity works, everything they've done ever since they were a little kid involves some kind of faith in the unknown. You know, if you remember going to kindergarten, you're scared to death or first grade or whatever, you had to have faith that something was going to be happening positive or, you you know, you wouldn't have been able to even function. Now, your parents kind of pushed you into the classroom. <laughs> but But the other thing is you operate constantly by faith. And so to say that faith is a principle that is somehow not as valid as guarantees or observations is just is just plain bunk. You operate every single day. You wouldn't try anything that is in the future without exercising a moment of faith. So people need to realize how skilled they are at doing this all the time. And if they do this all the time a little bit, they can increase their capacity to do it a lot more. But why one person will risk a lot and why another will not risk is probably for a huge future talk because there are so many variables and factors that would make them not want to move forward. Criticism, fear, some of them big ones. And then sometimes it's the family of origin where the family just says, you know, the members of the Brown family don't do those kinds of things or be sure to make us proud and don't, don't do anything stupid. So it's hard to go out there and risk and, and have faith in something new when everybody is kind of giving you those guarantee boundaries. 
saying, please don't do anything that is going to upset the apple cart or embarrass us or embarrass yourself. Tell it's me about tough. this, John. If if a person takes a leap of faith or they, they take those tentative steps into the darkness, not knowing where their feet are going to land, and they fail, does that mean that their faith has been misplaced? Or is that is that part of the process of exercising faith is understanding there are no guarantees. Maybe this well, time maybe this time it carries you, but maybe it doesn't. Yeah, sometimes it may not carry you. The point is, is it's a principle of action and power. It's a principle of action and power. The the point is, is that there is a lot to be learned in the journey, even if it doesn't come out the way that you would like it to, to come out. The point is, you know something more about yourself as a result of the journey than you knew before. You know that you have the capacity to move towards an unknown. As a matter of fact, I can't prove this from a philosophical standpoint, but I actually think that the more unknown the thing is, the greater the characteristic of faith is within the person. I mean, Interesting. You know, it's, it's a situation where, where, you know, we look at these people who go again, and there's stories all kinds of times, and, you know, of people just accomplishing things that are just absolutely illogical, just against all odds, just impossible. And yet, when they accomplish it, then they we say, wow, this was just amazing. But then if they don't accomplish it, they're capacitated to move in another direction that maybe is something that will give them result to faith. Wow. That, uh, okay, that, there are so many other directions I want to go, but we have about two minutes. Uh, so <laughs> let's, let's bring this home. If there are some takeaways that, uh, that we want uh, the listener to, to take away from this conversation, let's just quickly summarize what to, what needs to happen. First of all, let's let's revisit the idea of internal versus external. Why do we want to make internal influences the thing that that moves us to become a better person? Well, two things immediately that we talked just about talked about now is so you get some kind of idea of what your own personal powers are and what you can control. But the other thing is that it's the antidote for feeling like a victim. It's the antidote for feeling like life sucks and uh, I can't do anything about what happens to me. But do as much as you can from your internal motivation. Next question. Okay. And, and <laughs> secondly, in terms of, of exercising faith, what's a, what's a good rule of thumb for, for people who are, are, are wanting to exercise faith but to, trying to find the courage to get their feet to move? Well, first of all, it's very scary. Second of all, it's very stressful. Third of all, you're not going to have answers. Fourth of all, you're going to feel like you are on a, on a precipice where you don't know where you're really going. I think you have to accept these, these emotional states that happen to you as a result of exercising faith. And also realize that you do it every single day. And if you want to make it stronger, you've got to move out into the unknown and, unknown and take a risk. Otherwise, you don't know what you're capacitated to do at all. I love it. Actually, you know, I know that we, we stated our goal at the beginning of this conversation was let's get in, let's make people feel empowered. I feel empowered from our conversation. So, John, there's at least one soul that's that's been changed from this conversation. I'm sure there are others as well. Where can people well, find you? What's your website? My website is climbingupward.com and also climbingupwardmusic.com. And uh, just come on over and take a look at what we can do. Okay. John, wonderful to talk with you. I'll have you on again soon.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. It's our final segment today. A quick shout out to my sponsors, including ClimbingUpward.com, TMCPNation.com, Borelli.com, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So let's uh, finish out the week with some strong medicine from J.B. Shirk. I just, I've really come to appreciate his writing, and he paraphrases the old line you've heard, well, the Constitution isn't a suicide pact. But he reminds us that if, look, if the feds don't want to abide by the Constitution, then maybe they need to go away. So he starts with some quotes that will will sound familiar for those who have followed current events over the last few years. Uh, Let's see, James Comey, I am the law. Fauci, I am the science. The deep state, we are your democracy. Federal Reserve, we are your freedom. J.B. Shirk says this kind of authoritarianism does not belong in America. He says, when tyrants pervert the law, distort scientific inquiry, abuse their power, and pilfer middle-class savings, they're Americans in name only. Now, he says, now that Mr. Durham has gotten around to confirming what most of us have known for nearly seven years, namely that Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, John Brennan, Jim Comey, James Clapper, and the state-aligned press corps doing the intelligence community's bidding all conspired to push the fraudulent Russian collusion narrative in an attempt to take down a duly elected president. And he says there are quite a few people calling for the FBI to either be reformed or disbanded. Surprisingly, some of these people now calling for the FBI's demolition are even elected officials. Now, he says, my response is simple. This should be just the beginning. The federal government is rotten to its core by terms of the U.S. Constitution. It has accumulated powers and authorities far beyond anything enumerated and vested to it. It funds a massive administrative state that should not exist. It not only ignores the Bill of Rights, but actively works to undermine those rights. He says, in my estimation, any government official who engages in public censorship, religious discrimination, gun confiscation, or warrantless searches of private records in violation of Americans' First, Second, and Fourth Amendment rights has explicitly betrayed any constitutional oath taken before entering office. And he says anyone in office attempting to implement some form of disinformation to uh, some disinformation board to monitor and modify American speech should never hold office again. That so many elected and unelected federal employees not only disregard Americans' constitutional rights, but also vocally brag about infringing them, demonstrates that a malignant cancer afflicts the central government from head to toe. I did mention this was strong medicine, right? Okay, just making sure. So, J.B. Shirk says, yes, disband the FBI, but don't stop there until all the powers stolen by the federal government have been properly returned to the states and the American people. He says, to save the republic, the federal government must be starved and diminished. Anything less is like putting a Band-Aid on a cannonball's exit wound. Now, some people look around us and find the job too great. The task is too big. Why? He asks, well, he says, look, you, you own your physical labor. You have power over your mind. You possess personal agency. The federal government is insolvent. It's desperately printing money to survive, clinging to a pipe dream that it can sex- successfully impose a future central bank digital currency upon Americans in order to continue this madness for another century. 
He says the D.C. Leviathan is busy punishing international rivals, prosecuting foreign wars, and recklessly threatening allies. As it watches the dollar's reserve currency status go up in smoke. While hundreds of trillions of dollars in mandatory entitlement spending remain entirely unfunded, blue cities and states across the country push for trillions more in racial reparations, climate justice, and property redistribution. J.B. Shirk says it's so obvious that the whole house of cards will soon be crashing down that government tyrants who specialize in buying the public servitude by spending other people's money have thrown all caution to the wind. Does it seem like the federal government's future is on sound footing? Just last week, pretend President Biden told the graduating class at Howard University that the biggest threat to the country is white supremacy. The notion is so absurd that it came off like the kind of weak pandering that third world dictators rhetorically vomit forth when they're eager to keep their citizens fighting one another and distracted from the government's primary role in their suffering. Now, given that Biden has a lifetime of racist behavior under his belt, J.B. Shirk says, I bet half expect, I half expected, rather, Democrat presidents Woodrow Wilson and Lyndon Johnson to tap dance out on the stage and say, America's most notoriously racist presidents approve this message. Leave it to the real white supremacists from the Democrat Party to declare war on white supremacy outside the party. Does that brand of craziness sound like a government confined, or confident rather, in its future stability? Because he says it sounds to me like the actions of a tin pot tyrant desperately seeking a scapegoat. Now, J.B. Shirk says, look, I don't look forward to the chaos ahead, but if the goal is to reclaim our personal freedom from a tyrannical beast that betrays both our natural liberties and the U.S. Constitution daily, I'd rather be living in this decade than during the last century's monstrous growth of the administrative state. At least now we're on the verge of being able to do something about it. And surely that's what Dementia Joe really means when he reads his deep state handler's script decrying white supremacy. They're not fighting whiteness. They're fighting rising calls for the federal government to answer for decades of heinous crimes, unconscionable power grabs, and totalitarian tactics. Heck, Biden's leading Democrat challenger is openly calling out the CIA for having been involved in President Kennedy's assassination. What the deep state fears most today is constitutional supremacy. Ooh, that's a good phrase. J.B. Shirk says, I have no doubt that innumerable liberty-loving patriots from the past would relish being alive today. He says, think of all the Americans who've been warning about this looming catastrophe since before President Roosevelt's New Deal, or even the ratification of the 16th Amendment's income taxing authority and the contemptible construction of the Federal Reserve System in 1913. Concerned Americans have been fighting expanding bureaucracy, runaway government debt, infringement of the individual state sovereignty, and loss of personal liberty almost from the country's inception. So during that time, while sound money once tethered to precious metals was traded for worthless paper currencies and a regulatory nanny state empowered private bankers to gobble up Americans' personal property, those who complained were shouted down. While George Orwell warned about government subversion of language, Ayn Rand warned that socialism was overtaking America, and numerous survivors of China's cultural revolution warned that the investation of political correctness is how soft tyranny takes hold. The deep state cancer, meanwhile, festered without treatment. Now we stand as witnesses to what happens when so many decades of earnest warnings go ignored. 
an unwieldy, unconstitutional, un-American Leviathan gorging itself on the banks of the Potomac cannot sustain itself because it has destroyed free enterprise, declared its citizens domestic enemies, and deprived Americans of the very freedoms and self-determination wholly responsible for having made the country strong. For some people, the accumulation of all this damage fosters in them a desire to curl up inside a dark hole. For others who cherish the opportunity to rectify decades of unconstitutional power hoarding from a corrupt and largely illegitimate federal government, the time for reclaiming lost liberties is here. He says, from my point of view, never have so many Americans been so consciously aware that things must change. The federal government's response to the 9-11 Islamic terrorist attacks has been the endless war and construction of a national security surveillance state that now targets Americans as domestic enemies. Its response to mass communication through social media has been the implementation of state-sanctioned censorship. Its response to widespread calls for border security has been mass sponsorship of illegal immigration. Its response to Americans' rising demands for personal freedom has been COVID lockdowns, a centrally directed economy, and a declaration of war against white supremacy. As Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius pithily observed, the object of life is not to be on the side of the majority, but to escape finding oneself in the ranks of the insane. More Americans are choosing sanity, says J.B. Shirk, and refusing to go away. He says, that's the kind of progress... I can get behind. After all, the union is not a suicide pact. Either the federal government should abide by the U.S. Constitution or it should go away. I know that's pretty strong talk, and for some people it might even be a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know, man. I just don't... I don't know if I want to go there. I ask myself, what would the founding generation think? They had the moral clarity to recognize when, okay, this system of government isn't working and uh, maybe it's time to separate ourselves. Now, I understand. There, there are those who are, well, that is not a call for revolution. Well, I'm calling for peaceful separation. You probably know as well as I do, though, that uh, the people who want control want control enough that they will murder for it. And that's on them. Thankfully, we have options. Nullification is one. Secession is another. The Second Amendment is kind of the final option. But I think the one that we overlook the most is, uh, are we turning to God like the founders did in their moment of need? Maybe we should give that some consideration. This is The Brian Hyde Show.